in order to benefit from you know, the higher returns of the stock market, the, the price of that is short-term volatility. Welcome to the Canadian Couch Potato Podcast, where we help you become a better investor with index funds and ETFs. I'm Dan Bortolotti, and this is episode 19. There's a common theme in all three segments of this episode, and that is the risk-return trade-off between stocks and bonds. This is hardly an original idea, but it remains one of the most important concepts in investing. It's also a good time to revisit this theme, as we just marked the 10th anniversary of the collapse of Lehman Brothers, an event that spiraled into the worst financial crisis since the Great Depression. Many of us will never forget those dark days of 2008 and early 2009, when people genuinely wondered whether stock markets might go to zero. But the recovery was so swift and so steady that the crisis quickly faded from many people's memories. And for those in their 20s and 30s who haven't experienced anything more than a few modest corrections during their investing careers, the crisis has about as much resonance today as the Second World War. We're going to kick things off with a discussion with Larry Bates, a former investment banker who has become an outspoken advocate for Canadian investors. Larry is the author of a new book called Beat the Bank, which lays out a strategy that he calls Simply Successful Investing, with a focus on education, long-term thinking, and low costs. In our interview, we also spend a good deal of time talking about the rewards of long-term investment in equities, as well as the difficulty of doing that with discipline. And I'm very pleased to welcome to the studio today, Larry Bates, author of Beat the Bank. Larry, thanks for coming in. Great to be here, Dan. Thank you. Okay. So before we talk about the book and the ideas in the book, I wanted to ask you to reflect a little bit about your career uh, as an investment banker and how that ultimately prompted you to write this book. Sure. Well, I, I had a, a very enjoyable career. I spent 35 years in the, uh, in the investment business, most of that time with uh, RBC Capital Markets in both Toronto and uh, London, England. Um, I, <clears throat> I spent my time working with large institutional investors as well as large corporates and uh, governments and financial institutions. So not with uh, average individual investors but on the institutional side. And I was, I was sitting on the trading floor on the 68th floor of uh, one of the big bank towers a few years ago uh, as my career in the business was kind of winding down. And uh, I got a call from my sister, Mary. From, uh, from New Brunswick. And she said to me, well, Larry, uh, all we hear about is how well the, the stock markets are doing, yet this, this bank mutual fund that we, that we own hasn't really done much over the past 15 or 20 years, and we don't understand why. Can you have a look? And so I, uh, you know, I Googled it and, and, and found it quickly. And I said, uh, Mary, do you, do you realize you're paying 2.3% fees? And she said, we're, we're paying fees. And I said, yeah, 2.3%. And she said, do you mean... 2.3% of our gains. And I said, no, no, 2.3% of your total assets every year for the past 15 or 20 years, which means, you know, you've lost 30 or 40% of your money in fees. And she was, she was shocked. She, she was unaware she was paying fees and she's no dummy. She's got a master's degree, but she's like most Canadians. She didn't understand the extent of the fees she was paying and, and certainly didn't understand the impact those fees have over time on, uh, on your returns. And she felt, uh, you know, she's very upset. Her retirement savings are very important to her. And uh, I didn't feel very good after that conversation. You know, I like most people, you want to feel good about where you work. Uh, 
you know, hey, I work in the business. It's supposed to make a profit. That's fine. But it's all, the business is also supposed to serve clients well. And I, I felt, look, the banks aren't really serving the majority of their clients well. And it, it bothered me. And uh, it ended up with me writing this book. All right. So you've become quite an investment or investor advocate um, since leaving your banking career. One of the things that uh, you have done as part of that activity is you're now a member of the Ontario Securities Commission's investment or sorry, investor advisory panel. So for listeners who aren't aware, the Ontario Securities Commission or OSC is the provincial regulator uh, that regulates the investment industry in the province. Um, tell us a little bit about what the panel does and what your role is and what some of the most uh, important causes are that you were trying to advance uh, in that forum? Sure. Uh, well, uh, the Investor Advisory Panel is, uh, is, is a group uh, that is um, designed to advise the Ontario Securities Commission on, uh, on policies and regulation from an investor point of view. So uh, we look at uh, a variety of issues that the commission's considering things like embedded commissions or uh, the relationship between an advisor and a client in terms of you know, how much disclosure is appropriate, uh, the conflict that an advisor has between earning commission and serving a client well and so forth. And, uh, and, and we try to encourage the commission to, uh, uh, to consider uh, the investor's point of view and to set policy and regulation with that in mind. So let's let's uh, run with that idea that you mentioned a minute ago, embedded commissions. So again, for listeners who aren't sort of familiar with that jargon, what that refers to is uh, investment products, whether it's mutual funds or other types of products that are sold to a client that pay the advisor a commission that's built into the price. So in other words, the or the client rather is not paying the advisor transparently and directly. The product provider is paying the advisor directly and the client is paying indirectly. So there has been a debate about this. Some countries, including the UK and Australia, have recently banned them. Um, Canada has talked about it for a long time. The regulators have largely um, dismissed that or they've considered it, but they have stopped short of actually doing it. What's your thoughts about embedded commissions? Is it a, is it a conflict of interest for advisors or is there a way to have embedded commissions and products and still serve a client well? Yeah, <clears throat> the, the, the problem is, well, the industry has fought very, very hard to uh, to retain these embedded commissions, as you say, uh, what that really means is that investors don't pay directly. They don't pay fees directly. The fees are deducted quietly from their accounts uh, on a daily or monthly basis. The industry wants to keep it that way because um, they never really have to present a bill. How do you know what you're paying? Uh, if you never receive a clear bill. Well, and the story you uh, told about your sister a minute ago makes well, that's that right. clear. She was paying a very high fee and was totally unaware of it. That's right. So, you know, for that reason, uh, embedded commissions are, are, are not in, you know, don't serve investors well. They serve the industry well. They, they, they contribute to this sort of secrecy around uh, or mystery around uh, the, the real cost of investing in, in, in the products that banks typically recommend. Um, and it's not good. There are alternatives that are much lower cost and 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 uh, and much better, uh, much healthier for investors. Uh, and and they're out there. 
Yeah, one of the interesting things about this debate is it's not even really about lower fees per se. I mean, if you have a mutual fund that has an embedded commission of 1% that goes to the advisor and there's also a class of that mutual fund with no embedded commission, but the advisor charges the client 1% directly, those two situations have the same price, but the latter is much more transparent. And so that's why I've always been a bit um, unclear about why advice, well, I'm not, shouldn't say I'm unclear. I would say it's disingenuous for advisors to say that uh, embedded commissions can serve clients well. And, or to say that those clients don't want to pay fees up front. I think everyone wants to know what they're paying. And if an advisor can only collect a fee by hiding it, then chances are he's not providing the kind of value that he thinks he is. It's just not right. Mm -hmm. and, you know, and then that, again, that's one of the reasons I wrote the book. I, I don't feel that the, uh, that the industry serves clients well generally, and, uh, and, and it's got to change. Okay, so one of the things that uh, you write about in the book, and actually you, you created a measure uh, of this a uh, few years ago before the book came out, and that is, uh, it's what you call the T-REX score. This is a way of measuring the effect of compounding fees over time rather than just what the fee might be in one given year. Can you explain a little bit about what that score is and, and how to interpret it? Sure. Um, fees are quoted in the industry when they are quoted. <laughs> They're quoted um, on an annual basis. So you pay a fee of 1% a year or a, or a fee of 1% is deducted or a fee of 2% is deducted from your account every year. Well, that's fine. Uh, but um, most people don't think about that over the long term. Um, people don't invest for one year. They invest for 10, 20, 30 years or longer. Um, and uh, the cost of investing should be uh, should be um, put in that context, in that long-term context. And that's what the T-REX score does. T-REX stands for Total Return Efficiency Index. That's kind of technical. Uh, but uh, it's also kind of uh, uh, a reference to uh, Jack Bogle's famous statement. Uh, he said that the miracle of compounding returns can be undermined or destroyed by the tyranny of compounding costs, so T-Rex tyranny, et cetera. Anyway, um, I had some fun with that, as you can tell. But the T-Rex score will tell you how much of your total return over time you actually end up keeping. Um, and so let me give you an example. If, um, if you have a, a, an investment time frame of 25 years, you want to make an assumption that your return is – the underlying assets is going to be 6%, but you're paying a fee of 1%. You pump that into the calculator, you know, 25 years, 6% return total, minus 1% fees. And that will tell you that you're retaining around 75% of your return. So your fees, a 1% fee translates into a, a lost return of 25%. Over the period of 25 years. Yeah. So of so, all the gains that you amassed in yeah. those 25 years, you keep 75% for yourself and 25% yeah. of that was lost to fees. So I would say that the true fee there is not 1%, it's 25%. Right. And if the fee that's being deducted from your account is 2% a year, then that T-Rex score is actually – it drops down to around 50%. You retain only about 50% of your return. 50% is lost in fees. Right. So your true fee is 50%. Does that make any sense? To me, that's 
that's catastrophic. It's it's crazy. You know, you, most Canadians you work hard, sacrifice to save, risk their money in the market over their working lifetime, trust their bank or their financial institution to treat them fairly, and they lose 50% of their return to fees. It, it just makes no sense. And so the T-Rex score makes that clear. And you can go to my website, uh, larrybates.ca, and you can uh, you can run your own numbers. Okay. So to help us put those numbers in context, then what would you consider to be a kind of respectable T-Rex score for an investor sure. know, over a given period? Investors can um, – can invest in a very, very low-cost manner. You know, as an example, the, the, the portfolios that you – the model portfolios that you have on your website, uh, uh, index fund portfolios that cost uh, a, a do-it-yourself investor perhaps 25 basis points a year, 0.25% a year. Um, your T-Rex score with that sort of portfolio will be in the range of 97%. You keep 97% of your returns. Um, so I would say that that – any uh, any T Rex score below that level should be uh, offset by the advice that you're receiving. If you're receiving, if your T Rex score is is eighty percent or seventy percent, whatever it is, um, you better make sure that you're receiving sufficient value of service from your financial advisor or your or your financial institution provider that uh, that's that you're getting the benefit for the cost that you're effectively paying. Right. Because I was, I was going to say, whenever you make uh, comparisons like that between, you know, a DIY situation or an advised situation, it's, it's not an apples to oranges comparison, but you're absolutely right. You're going to pay more for the situation where you're getting advice. Yes. The question is, are you getting value for the advice? And um, yeah. So do, that's, a, do a cost benefit analysis. You know, that's what we do. We don't necessarily think of that when we're as a consumer, whether buying a cup of coffee or a car or a home, we say, well, you know, is it worth the price? Well, I would say it's the same for advice, uh, for investment advice. You know, understand the costs you're, you're paying and uh, assess the benefit you're receiving and make a, a value judgment. Right. And, uh, it, you know, but I, but I would say that, that if you take a little bit of time to learn investment basics, you'll be in a much, much better position to make a well-informed decision, which is very, very important. We're not talking about, you know, nickels and dimes here. We're talking about your, your retirement savings, your, your nest egg, and, and, and the decisions you make uh, can can make a huge difference in the ultimate result. So that's a nice segue into what you call in the book simply successful investing. So tell us a little bit about um, this idea. There doesn't seem like there's a lot of hard and fast rules to it. It's more a kind of collection of basic principles, reducing cost and complexity, and really tying your investment strategy to your personal goals. So tell us a bit about the the main ideas behind that strategy. Sure. Well, the, the book is is called Beat the Bank. The Canadian Guide to Simply Successful Investing. And I talk about that concept, Simply Successful Investing, throughout the book. And, uh, you know, simply, the word simple, it, simple is better. The industry uh, uses complexity as a strategy. The basic message is, look, Dan, you know, this stuff, this investment stuff is so complicated. It's dangerous. Don't even bother trying to think about it. Just trust me. And, you know, too many Canadian consumers, you know, buy that argument. They don't, uh, they don't take any time to learn investment basics. Uh, the, the normal 
consumer uh, buyer beware or skepticism, healthy skepticism is missing from the equation and the industry takes advantage of it. It's not healthy. So simply successful investing is about uh, three basic fundamentals. First, take a little bit of time to learn investment basics. It's not that complicated. It can be very simple. Uh, second is th think long-term. Uh, ignore the noise in the market day-to-day -day or month-to-month. -month. It's just it's just noise. It doesn't mean anything. Uh, take a long-term outlook. And third is minimize costs. Uh, you know, advisors provide lots of advice, and, and most of them are good people. But broadly speaking, if you go to a bank branch and advisors selling mutual funds, they don't mention cost, which is probably the, the most important determinant of your investment success. Now, one of the other main principles that you discuss in the book is um, really a commitment to investing in equities as opposed to fixed income. Now, I don't want to suggest that you're not recommending balanced portfolios because you are. Um, but for example, there's a case study family that you use in the book uh, that comes back to repeatedly. And in one of the examples, um, you know, they're 100% in equities, even in their 50s. Now, I always say, like, I work with about 80 client families or so, and exactly zero of them are 100% equities, just because the fact is most people find it very difficult to deal with a volatility like that. So I wanted to ask you just about kind of how realistic is it to expect people to invest in discipline with a portfolio that is close to 100% equities and how, what kind of glide path should they follow to become a little bit more conservative over time? I would say that uh, most Canadians, in my view, are are a bit too conservative when it comes to investing. In my view, if if you're in your 30s or 40s and you're saving for a retirement that's going to last 30 years and is 30 years away, so you're talking about a range of requiring funds from 30 to 60 years out, and you have that long-term outlook I mentioned, then a, a portfolio that's largely equities or even if you're comfortable with volatility, and you have to be, uh, in order to invest in equities. And even 100% equity can make sense for somebody in their 30s and 40s. Uh, but it, it requires um, a long-term mindset. And I'll give you an example. My favorite little table in the book is uh, talks about the, um, it looks at the S&P 500, the, uh, the, most, the largest U.S. stock index. It contains the generally the largest U.S. Uh, US companies and the collective performance, stock market performance of those companies over a 90-year period uh, ending a few years ago. Uh, and it looked at each single trading day over that 90-year period, 20-plus thousand trading days. And it looked at each individual day and whether the market went up or down. So whether you made money or lost money on each individual day. So based on those stats, uh, what do you think the probability is based on that 90-year period of making money on one individual day on the U.S. stock market. Yeah, it's a coin flip, right? I mean, it's more or less 50-50. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's 54%. So in any individual day, you know, you're, you, you've got a 46% chance of losing money. That doesn't sound like a very safe conservative bet, does it? It doesn't, obviously. Uh, so that's a one-day a one view. Now, how about a, a, a one-year view? 
Yeah, it's 80. more like, is it two-thirds, I think? 74%. Yeah. Yeah. So if you go out five, uh, if you go 10 years, uh, in any given 10-year period, the market was up 94% of the time. And if you stretch that out to 20 years, long-term investing, the number is 100%. So there wasn't a single 20-year period over those 90 years, starting on each individual of those 20,000 days, that the market wasn't up over that period. So... So, you know, I take the view that that time, you know, long periods of time translate uh, short-term betting and gambling on the market into, at least historically, very, very high probability of positive returns. Yeah, I remember reading some data on this as well that had said, you know, we all know about how unpredictable stock market returns are over periods of one, two, you know, even five years. Mm -hmm. But if you look at rolling 30-year stock market returns, in other words, pick any year as a starting point and go the next 30 years, they're remarkably consistent, at least in the US, I think that's where all the best data is. Um, But over every rolling 30-year period, it's sort of in the ballpark of eight or 9%, you know, so that very, very consistent if you take a large enough sample. So... But at the same time, in order to benefit from the higher returns of the stock market, the the price of that is short term volatility Absolutely. and you've got to be able to stomach you know downdrafts of 10 20 30 or even 40% or more and that's what we saw in 2008 and 9 you know sickening was it was scary i mean and it's understandable that I mean, the worst thing that you can do is put yourself in a circumstance where you've invested too much of your portfolio in the stock market such that when the market goes down you can't take it anymore and you bail out that's the worst scenario and, and too many people did that and they never got back in and they left, you know, the market's gone up, uh, you know, 200% since then. And, and a lot of people were left on the sidelines and never recovered. You can't, you know, you've got to make sure that you've got a, a long-term mindset and, you, and your, your portfolio is structured such that whatever your stock market component is consistent with uh, your ability to handle the volatility that we know will be there. I think we... Um we all tend to us underestimate the volatility of stocks. So I certainly find it, I mean, it's part of our process, of course, as any advisor to uh, do a risk tolerance questionnaire and discussion with new clients. And I'm always surprised at how many people, you know, will say something like, you know, I'd like to be 70, 80% equities. And then on the questionnaire, you know, you ask them, what sort of annual loss do you think would be the maximum you could tolerate? And they say, well, between 5 and 10%. <laughs> and I say, well, you know, you always have to assume, I think, that your equity portfolio can be cut in half. It was in many cases in 2008, 09, at least over a sort of six-month period there. It was down 40 to 50%. Yeah. So if you're going to have a portfolio of 70% stocks, you need to be thinking about 30, 35% possible loss in a really terrible event like that. I hope it never happens again too, but it's happened in the past and it's kind of naive to think that it will never happen again. I so, completely agree. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now you actually make a, a great analogy in the book to talk about this, our, our focus on short-term versus long-term thinking. Um, you make this point that, you know, most of us know who the world's great sprinters are. I mean, we all know Usain Bolt. He's a household name in Canada. We all knew 
Donovan Bailey back in the day. Most people know Andre DeGrasse today because sprinting is exciting. It's fun. Now name the top three marathoners in the world. There's guys from East Africa. Most people don't know their names because it's not a spectator sport, right? I mean, it's a very difficult uh, and amazing athletic achievement but it's boring to watch. And you know, what, what's the parallel with investing here? Well, I think that's, that's right. Uh, you know, I, I've got a little table in the book uh, comparing long-term investor, which is what I, I think most Canadians need to focus on versus somebody who bets on the market um, and wants to time the market. And uh, you know, I suggest that uh, betting on the market's a sprint, uh, long-term in- investing is a marathon. And yeah, and I actually wrote the book, and I mentioned uh, uh, two or three marathoners, and I, I, actually, I actually don't remember their names, even though I, I just wrote the book. So, yeah, um, <clears throat> boring is better. Uh, you know, uh, Richard Thaler, who uh, who won the Nobel Prize in economics last year, uh, I, I quote him in the book. He said that uh, Rip Van Winkle would have made a great investor. He would have invested before his nap, and when he woke up 20 years later, he'd be happy. And, you know, that's – to me, that's the right way – to invest. To extend that metaphor about sprints versus marathons, you, you have a good term in the book that I like where you talk about undisciplined marathoners or what you call closet sprinters. And these are the people, and we all know them, right, who say they're long-term investors and say that they're saving for retirement and they're not traders, but they still are reluctant to add money to their portfolio when the markets are high. And this is a chronic problem today I see all the mm-hmm. time. Yeah. Um, people say markets have been so strong for the last few years, I'm not putting any more money into it until there's a pullback, right? Well, once you start prefacing your <laughs> statements by saying, I know we shouldn't be a market timer, but, and then it's followed by a statement where you're just timing the market, somehow we've lost sight of the fact that this is a long-term marathon. You know, and, and studies have been done. I'm sure you're familiar with them, which uh, which demonstrate that uh, over time, uh, stock markets have produced average returns, uh, depending on the market. Let's say eight percent, but the average stock market investor uh, only achieves uh, four or five percent return because, uh, despite the fact that we want to buy low and sell high. You know, our, our emotions scream out the opposite. Uh, the market's hot. Uh, we buy. The market's down. You know, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna buy anymore. I might sell some. But we, so we 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 do the opposite. We we buy high and we sell low. And that's just human behavior. So uh, you know, that's one of the advantages of, of long term index investing. Um, you know, as as as, as you uh, advocate for you. Just ignore the noise. Forget, you know, the, the commentators out there in the media. Uh, you know, BNNs, great stuff, but you know what? They're sprint coaches. Okay, they're 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 talking about the hottest new stock or the new region or you know the the newest uh, variation of beta high beta funds or whatever it might be. I, I just avoid all that stuff. That's just all noise. You know, in, invest in a diversified pool of. of of, of great businesses. Now, when it comes to actually implementing an investment plan, you make a distinction in the book between uh, a DIY investor, a term we use all the time, and what you've called an AIY or assemble it yourself investor. So tell us a little bit about the differences between those two types of people. You can uh, use a discount broker to 
um, invest in index funds, low-cost index, index funds that will charge one-tenth of a percent a year or two-tenths of a percent a year. Uh, and you can own two or three of them or even one of them. Uh, you know, Vanguard, uh, the new Vanguard balance funds are fantastic products. Um, and, and if you do do it that way, which we talk about in the book, and I know that you you talk about as well and have for a long time, uh, you're not really a do-it-yourself investor. You're not choosing your own stocks. You're buying really a package that's that's professionally managed by somebody else. So uh, it's kind of like uh, you know, if you go to IKEA and you you buy a, a chest of drawers and you bring it home and you assemble it, you know, it might take a couple of hours. You might make a mistake or two, but generally, you know, you can get it done. Does that make you a cabinet maker? No, you're not a cabinet maker. You didn't you didn't chop down the tree. You didn't choose the veneer. You didn't you didn't uh, you know choose the hardware or paint it or whatever. you're not a cabinet maker. You you just assembled it. So I I, I call that assemble it yourself investing, which I think uh, I believe is is a strategy for those that take a little bit of time to learn the basics. Is uh, is a strategy that for many of those who are currently invested through expensive mutual funds. It's a, it's a it's a method that can that makes sense. It's uh, it's sensible, not dangerous, and and you can end up uh, you will end up through that method keeping a heck of a lot more of of the returns you generate. Okay, the last question I have for you, Larry, is I always like to ask people. Like I feel very strongly that if we uh, give advice to um, readers and listeners in the media uh, about how to invest money. We should be open about how we invest our own money. So, and you talk a little bit about this in some of the books. So, I don't think I'm telling any secrets here. But I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about your own investment strategy. What kind of, um, what does your your own portfolio look like in terms of uh, individual stocks versus ETFs versus funds, etc.? Sure. Well, uh, I I, uh, I spent my career in the business, so um, I, I felt comfortable over time um, using uh, a discount broker without advice. And, and building up a, a portfolio of, of blue chip stocks, largely Canadian stocks, a lot of bank stocks, um, and uh, and other uh, other good quality dividend paying uh, stocks. Um, most of my U.S. investments are through low cost index funds. Uh, there's so many U.S. stocks to choose from, and I do have a few, but but most of my uh, most of my U.S. stuff is uh, low cost index funds, S and P 500, uh, etc. And uh, I um, over the last uh, several years, I've added some GICs to uh, to my portfolio. Um, I don't own bonds. Uh, I prefer GICs. Uh, the, the yields uh, are tend to be better, uh, and uh, they're also uh, government guaranteed, uh, largely depending on how you how you manage it. Um, but I've added those over the past few years. But previously, I was I was pretty much 100% equity. Uh, but as I'm uh, getting closer to retirement and sort of in semi-retirement now, I've added a fair bit of fixed income. So a long career in in the industry has kind of made you uh, immune to the volatility, or at least I'm sure you feel not it. Not immune. <laughs> I mean, I I can remember 2008 and nine, and uh, I was uh, you know it was it was it was frightening and and no fun. But so I wasn't immune. But I was able to, you know, the smartest thing I ever did as an investor was not sell at that point in time. Good advice then, Don. Thanks so much for coming in, Larry. My pleasure. Thank you, Dan. Now it's time for another installment of Bad Investment Advice. 
where we feature a carefully curated selection of financial nonsense. This time around, I was inspired by an article on the Motley Fool website called Retirement Income, Two Dividend Stocks to Buy to Get Higher Returns. But really, this was just one of many articles that start from a simple but flawed premise, namely that dividend-paying stocks are a great alternative to fixed income investments, especially for retirees who are living off income from their portfolios. The author of the article starts by suggesting that generating income is difficult, quote, in an environment when savings accounts, GICs, and government bonds paid little returns, close quote. It then goes on to suggest that dividend growth stocks, that is, companies with a history of increasing their payouts, are a, quote, low-risk alternative for retirees. The two stocks he discusses in the article are Manulife Financial and Royal Bank, but I want to be clear here that I don't have any opinion on the prospects of these two stocks. And while it's especially problematic that the article recommends retirees engage in stock picking, it would be almost as bad if it instead suggested a dividend-focused ETF with dozens of holdings. Because the point here is that dividend-paying stocks, as wonderful as they are in a diversified portfolio, are not low-risk, and they're certainly not comparable to the savings accounts, GICs, and government bonds they're compared with in this article. It's easy enough to see how this dangerous misunderstanding came about. I mean, if you're a recent retiree, it's very difficult to come to grips with your new financial reality, and I've seen this many times with clients. For decades, you've been adding money to your accounts and you've been focused on growth. Any income that you receive was probably rolled right back into the portfolio. Maybe you've set up a DRIP, a dividend reinvestment plan for your stocks, or you use compound GICs that don't even pay cash distributions. And that all felt right during your accumulation years. But once you start living off the cash flow from your portfolio, you start to feel like everything has changed. Now you're tempted to even fundamentally alter your investment strategy. In fact, retirees often become so focused on choosing investments that generate income that they lose sight of the bigger picture, especially when it comes to risk. If you find yourself comparing a bank stock with a 3.5% yield to a GIC paying 2.5% and you choose the former simply because it generates more income, then you've fallen headlong into this trap. Because GICs and stocks aren't just apples and oranges, they're more like apples and hand grenades. I think the focus on yield can also be tracked back to the idea that retirees should live off income from their portfolios without spending the capital. This idea has been around for a long time and it has intuitive appeal because if you could pull it off, your money would last indefinitely. But the problem is it's hopelessly unrealistic for all but the wealthiest of people. Let's consider that the average yield on a balanced portfolio of stocks and bonds these days is a little less than 3%. So at that rate, a million-dollar account would generate less than $30,000 annually, and that's before taxes. Now, if you've saved a million bucks, chances are you want to enjoy a more comfortable retirement than $30,000 will permit. And of course, most people retire with much less than a million dollars, and therefore can't ever expect to live off just the income from their investments. They will have to draw down the capital too. And the thing is, there's nothing wrong with that. After all, we won't live forever, so our portfolios don't need to either. For most retirees, the goal should simply be to determine a sustainable withdrawal rate. Now, that calculation will require you to estimate your overall rate of return, but it doesn't much matter whether that return comes in the form of income, in other words, dividends and interest, or growth, in other words, capital gains. 
This is especially true if you, like most Canadians, hold all of your investments in tax-sheltered accounts such as RRSPs and TFSAs. Consider a retiree who is required to take a RIF withdrawal of $20,000 this year. Whether he gets that $20,000 from stock dividends, bond interest, or from selling some shares of an ETF makes no difference, even when you consider the tax payable on the withdrawal. That's why I like to make the distinction between cash flow and income. It's really more accurate to say that you need cash flow from your portfolio in retirement, and that can come from dividends, interest, or a withdrawal of your original capital. Once you appreciate this idea, you'll understand that it's total return that matters and not just yield, and you'll be better equipped to see why the Motley Fool's advice is so dangerous for retirees. It's dangerous because it spreads the pervasive myth that dividend-paying stocks are low risk. This is exactly the kind of thinking that I referred to in my introduction to this podcast. Anyone who thinks otherwise clearly does not remember the market crash that began in September 2008. Anyone who believed at that time that dividend stocks were safe ways to generate retirement income got a very rude awakening during the ensuing months. Royal Bank actually turns out to be a good example here. Now, a blue chip stock like this is indeed low risk compared to, say, a speculative investment like a small marijuana distributor or a junior mining stock. No one's suggesting that Canada's largest bank is likely to go to zero anytime soon. The point is, even blue chip stocks can suffer huge losses in the short term. Between May 2007 and February 2009, Royal Bank stock lost over half its value, falling from $60 to less than $30 per share. So ask a few retirees during that period whether they thought their bank stocks were low risk. They probably would have disagreed. Those quarterly dividends really aren't much comfort when your holding just lost 50% of its value. The fact that the Motley Fool article recommends Manulife as a low-risk stock is even harder to understand. In November 2007, Manulife was trading at about $43 a share, and some 15 months later, at the depth of the financial crisis, it fell below $10, for a decline of close to 80% during that period. That's low risk? What's more, Manulife is a classic example of how dividend stocks can occasionally add an additional layer of risk compared with stocks that don't pay any yield at all. After its share price recovered significantly in 2009, but still reeling from the financial crisis, Manulife cut its dividend by half, arguing in a press release that, quote, retaining more of our earnings is the most effective means of building capital. Now, from a business perspective, that was probably true. It was the wrong time to be paying shareholders in cash. But dividend investors disagreed and they dumped the stock in droves. It fell 14% on the day of that announcement. Again, my point here is not to call out these specific stocks. They just happen to be the ones named in the article. If you need more examples, consider that the iShares S&P TSX Canadian Dividend Aristocrats Index ETF, which is a fund that holds Canadian stocks with a history of rising dividends, lost about 44% of its value in the six months following September 2008. In the U.S., the Vanguard Dividend Appreciation ETF also lost about 40% over the same period. All of this should convince you that stocks, by their very nature, are not low risk, even if companies have a long history of rising dividends. In a crisis, they can lose half their value, or even much more. And when companies suffer, they can cut their dividends, and if they do, the stock often gets walloped even harder. Compare that to the savings accounts, GICs, and government bonds the Motley Fool article references. 
These investments may not pay a high yield, but they're guaranteed. GICs never fall in value, and even if the issuer defaults, they're guaranteed by the federal government. And bonds, while they can decline in value over the short term, are also backed by the full faith and credit of the government. That's what low risk really looks like. Now, no one is suggesting that dividend-paying stocks are to be avoided or that they cannot be part of a complete breakfast. On the contrary, most retirees are going to need a healthy allocation to equities or they may not be able to get the growth they need to sustain their portfolios throughout their lives. But whether you're picking blue-chip stocks or using a diversified index fund, the equity portion of your portfolio is not low-risk. And unless your retirement nest egg is so large and your stomach so strong that you can ride out a 50% decline, you need those truly low-risk investments like bonds and GICs in your portfolio too. Suggesting that dividend stocks are a good substitute is... Bad investment advice. And we're going to round out this episode with a segment of Ask the Spud, where I answer questions from readers and listeners. And joining me as always with the question is my colleague, Amanda Diel. So today's question comes from Teresa, who writes, I have about $400,000 in savings and own my home mortgage-free. I earn about $80,000 annually and expect to keep working for another 10 years. I have no pension to look forward to in retirement. I'm very risk averse and I'm considering putting most of my investments in GICs. What do you think of this approach? This is such a great question, Teresa, and it's one that you don't hear very often these days. We've been enjoying such a relentless bull market for years now. And if anything, investors are likely to wonder aloud why we all shouldn't be building all equity portfolios or maybe buying condos in Toronto. So it's refreshing to hear from someone who wonders whether they can fund their retirement without participating in the stock market at all. Another reason I'm happy to address this question is because the conventional answer, in my opinion, is often disrespectful. Many times I've heard advisors pressure investors to assume more risk than they're comfortable with. To someone like Teresa, they might say, GICs barely beat inflation and you're leaving all kinds of money on the table by not investing in equities. Sure, stocks can go through difficult periods, but the market always goes up over the long term, so you just need to accept the volatility. The problem is that that's an intellectual answer to an emotional question. No one's arguing that stocks have higher long-term expected returns than GICs, or that equity investors aren't usually rewarded for the risk they take. That isn't the point. What's important here is that investors like Teresa find that risk unacceptable. They know from experience that losing money, even thinking about losing money, is very stressful, and they don't want that anxiety in their lives. That's not a character flaw. Indeed, it actually shows an unusual amount of self-awareness. That's why I bristle when I hear people encouraging others to take more risk with their investments. To me, it's like telling someone who's afraid of flying to stop complaining and just get on the damn plane. People who are afraid of flying don't actually believe that planes have a high statistical likelihood of crashing, or at least I don't think they do. Their phobia is just part of who they are, and providing data about the relative safety of commercial aviation isn't going to allay their fears. So if you're not wired to accept any stock market risk at all, then you shouldn't let anyone compel you to. But if I can go back to the metaphor about fear of flying, an investor who wants to build an all-GIC portfolio does need to accept the trade-off. If you don't want to get on the plane, that's fine, but it also means you won't be able to get from Toronto to Vancouver in five hours. GICs are excellent products for those who want zero volatility, but if they will make up your entire portfolio, you will need to accept that 
Based on current rates, your expected return will be less than 3%. So, Teresa, you said you're about 10 years from retirement. And if you'll be in your mid-60s when you quit work, then you should probably plan for a retirement of about 30 years. Now, over that period, an investor whose portfolio includes, say, 50% equities will likely enjoy significantly higher return than 3%, at least if they invest with discipline and keep their costs low. So that means you will likely have less money to spend than your peers who have accepted the additional risk. And with that in mind, I suggest you work with a fee-only financial planner, one who doesn't sell investments or insurance, and run some projections. Based on what you have now, the amount you're planning to save over the next 10 years, your planned spending in retirement, and the income that you'll get from Canada Pension Plan and Old Age Security, is a 3% return adequate to meet your goals? If it's not, then you have a few options. You can work a few years more, save a greater portion of your income, or spend less in retirement, or some combination of all three. I appreciate that none of these options sounds particularly attractive, but if you don't want to fly across the country, then you do need to drive or take the train, and that is going to take a lot longer. There is one other potential risk of an all-GIC portfolio, and that's FOMO, or fear of missing out. While a very conservative investing strategy will help you sleep at night, it's not without its own behavioral pitfalls. I've worked with many investors who love the safety of GICs when the stock market is falling, but they're less enthusiastic about that guaranteed 3% after a year when equity markets return double digits. If you think index investing is boring, GIC investing is borderline comatose, so you will need to abandon all hope of getting any excitement from your portfolio. Teresa, you may very well be able to build your retirement portfolio using only GICs without taking any risk at all. But before making that decision, you should have a solid financial plan in place and make sure you understand the limits of a conservative investment strategy. Thanks, Dan. If you have an investing question for Dan, please send it to mail at canadiancouchpotato.com and he may answer it on a future podcast. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Canadian Couch Potato Podcast. As always, a hat tip to our producer and editor, Nick Jaworski, and to Amanda DL and all my colleagues at PWL Capital in Toronto. If you like the podcast, please take the time to leave us a review or rating on iTunes, which will help us reach more investors. Until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.